have a, one of my favorite quotes hanging on my wall in the office here at the church. It comes from a sermon series preached by John Piper. John Piper is a well-known scholar, pastor, preaches up in Minnesota. And he, um, years ago, preached through the book of Romans. It took eight years to preach the book of Romans, verse by verse by verse. And in that first sermon, as he introduced the book of Romans, he said something that has always stuck with me. I want to share it with you. I transcribed it, put it on a piece of paper, hung it in my office. I want to share it with you. He said this. He said, I'm not as moved today as I once was by the tyranny of the urgent or the need to respond to every trendy view that blows across the American cultural landscape. I'm well past midlife and my confidence has grown very deep. That the way to be lastingly relevant is to take your stand on old, tried, unshakable truths rather than jumping from pragmatic bandwagon to bandwagon, trying to do the latest thing to make things happen in the church. So I don't feel any need to do that sort of thing anymore. Romans is solid, is durable, is reliable, is unshakable, is old, is thorough. It fits where I am in my latter chapter. Love that way of understanding, not just Romans, but the Bible. There is no substitute for the preaching of God's Word, verse by verse, immersing yourself in the Scriptures. There just is no substitute for that. It is stable, it is solid, and it has immense application for ordinary, boring life. It'll meet us right where we are and transform us. It is solid. And we need solid things in our day. In a day where you feel like life is moving very fast and rapid, it's moving as fast as your Twitter feed or Facebook feed, we need something solid, old, something you can stand on. And God's Word is that. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to take a long journey through another book of the Bible we're going to take a walk through 1 Peter. I think you could say the same thing about 1 Peter as you can about Romans. You could say it about really any book in the Bible. 1 Peter is solid. It's durable. It's old. It's something we can stand on. Now, 1 Peter actually fits us as a church family for a couple other reasons. Well, number one, early in the year, we spent 15 weeks... 15 weeks walking through the first sermons of the Apostle Peter. It was in his early years of ministry. First Peter is late in life for Peter. It's his, it's his writing near the end of his life. It's like, it's like going back and listening to Clyde Wheeler's sermons from the 1960s and then comparing them to his sermons in the 1990s. I like to think that Clyde matured a little bit over 30 years. And I think what we'll, we'll find is by walking with this man who preached the first Christian sermon, remember we walked for 15 weeks through these sermons, we're going to gather even more wisdom as we, as we read and study what he wrote 30 years later. So I look forward to that. It's also stable and solid because, because when, Peter, when, when Peter wrote this, Christians throughout the Roman Empire were facing, facing persecution. Not widespread persecution, but they were living in a hostile environment. And I think that has something to say for us. 
as Christians living in 2021 in America. I think there's something to teach us how to live in a world that is increasingly hostile to our faith. So I think it's going to have something to say to us, some application for us in the 21st century. So for, as a church family, we get to come back. We, got to, we get to end the year where we started with the Apostle Peter. And then also we get to gain wisdom on how to live in a hostile world, in a world that doesn't necessarily uh, like or is friendly to the Christian gospel. So that's, those are two things I think that fit us. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're just going to begin at the beginning. And I think you'll see how the series will go. You ready for what we're going to read this morning? 1 Peter 1, 1. 1. Here we go. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's it. That's our passage for the morning. We've got a long trip. Got a long trip together, don't we? I bet I, yeah, eight years. Maybe eight years. I promise you'll be fun, though. All right. So here it is. So there's several things here in First Peter 1.1 that we need to deal with. It kind of sets us up for the rest of the series. So there are four questions I want to ask. Here they are. Uh, they're the classic interrogative questions, right? Who, what, when, and where? It's all right there in verse 1. So, who? So, who wrote the letter? Now, you and I are going to immediately say, well, Paul, Peter. The Apostle Peter wrote the letter. And I would say, you're right. This is the same Peter that Jesus called as one of his disciples. The same Peter that confessed him as Messiah. The same Peter that then told Jesus he couldn't go die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It's the same Peter that walked on water and then he... And then he began to drown. It's the same Peter that denied him three times on the night Jesus was arrested. The same Peter that repented. The same Peter that preached the first Christian sermon. It's that Peter. Now, in, in Christian theology, over the last 150 years, not every scholar has agreed that Peter wrote this letter. There is a particular argument among liberal scholars, Bible scholars, that Peter did not write this letter. I want to give you a couple of the arguments they use, and let's just let's just take them down and then move on. So, one argument that liberal scholars are going to say that uh, reason that Peter didn't write this letter is that the letter is actually written in sophisticated Greek, and a Galilean fisherman like Peter could not have written so well. Okay, so if you and I were studying the Greek, we would see that it's a higher level of Greek, and no uneducated Galilean fisherman would have been able to write a letter like this. So this must have been written much later. This was much later. This is after the legend of Jesus had developed, and then Christians that had made up the story of Jesus decades after this prophet in Palestine had lived, a man who never claimed to be God, that was, that was all made up, years later by people who wanted to follow this guy, that this letter was written decades in the future, and that these Christians who made up much of the legend of Jesus, they actually wrote the letter and they just put Peter's name on it to give it authority. Because this, is, this Greek is way too sophisticated for a man like Peter, a fisherman, to write. Well, there's a couple of things we need to remember when we talk like this. Number one, in Galilee, at the time of Jesus, Greek was a common language. So this isn't, this isn't some foreign language that was picked up 
Peter would have been fluent, not just in Aramaic, the language they would have spoke day to day. Greek would have also been part of the landscape, uh, the Galilean landscape. Also, Peter we think of as a fisherman. Now, yes, he was not educated like a rabbi. He didn't go to the highest levels of education, but he was solidly what we might call middle class. He was a businessman. And so he had education. He did, ha- he did go to synagogue. He was well-versed in the Scriptures. This is not a man, uh, uh, when we say uneducated, who would have been stupid. This is a man who would have been well-trained in the Scriptures, would have known how to read and write. And so the idea that he wouldn't have written in, some, in this kind of Greek is really just to make an assumption. And the other thing we need to remember is that Peter's not the only one actually pinning the letter. Yes, he is the author of the letter, inspired as the author, but as most of the New Testament letters, there are people alongside the authors writing, or sometimes they are dictating to the scribe. This is what's happening here in 1 Peter. So right at the end of the letter, 1 Peter 5, take, take, a, look, uh, take a look at how Peter ends the letter. He gets to the end, 1 Peter 5, first part of verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. I will not preach to you briefly, but he wrote briefly, and he has the help of Silas. And Silas, another educated man, is helping him write the letter. So to whatever extent this might have had a level of sophistication beyond Peter, it's not because Peter didn't write it, it's probably because Silas helped him. And in the early church, no no council, no significant group in the early church ever questioned that Peter didn't write this letter. So Peter... We can be confident, wrote this letter. The same apostle that was called by Jesus at the Sea of Galilee is the same Peter that wrote this letter. And God, in all of his sovereignty and all of his control by the Holy Spirit, made sure this letter gets to us as Christians in the 21st century as he wrote it back in the 1st century. All right. So the other who question is, like, who received this letter? Like, who was it written to? Most scholars think that it was written to non-Jews. This is important. Because this isn't just a group of people that grew up living and breathing the Old Testament Scriptures. These are people that were worshiping idols. These are people that were living a very bad kind of life. And they came to Jesus. They would have been people like you and me. That is, people, non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And there are a couple things, a few things in the letter that really tip us off to this. Because there are particular ways of talking about a non-Jewish life that indicate these were Gentiles. Take a look. We'll go First Peter. Um, oh, let's move on. I, I am completely bypassing that. And that might be because I need to move through this sermon quicker than usual. First Peter 1.14. As obedient children do not conform to the... Uh, here's what he writes. As obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So these are people that once lived in ignorance. And here, most scholars believe this is a reference to a non-Jewish life. That is, they did not grow up knowing the God of Israel. They lived in ignorance. Another one, go just a few verses later, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. When, When the New Testament refers to an empty way of life, this is tipping us off that it's talking about a Gentile life, a non-Jewish life. This is a life full of idolatry. So here, this is a group of people that were living an empty life. 
And how did they come to that empty life? It was passed down from their ancestors. This, these would have been people. These people would have been those that would have been worshiping at different temples, worshiping the emperor. These are people that would have been living solidly Gentile lives, not worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. All right. Uh, I can't wait to go here to verse 18 at some point because even the description of an empty life doesn't that seem to reflect the way some people are living? Or we are being enticed to live an empty life, like a shell of a life? All right. Look forward to getting there. I don't know how long it will take us, but at some point we will get to verse 18 in chapter 1. And then let's take a look at chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Here's what he writes. For you have spent enough, check this out, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. You used to live that kind of life. And now you don't live that kind of life. And now your friends are wondering, why aren't you living the way we used to live? And because you don't live the way they want you to live, they heap abuse on you. Just, by the way, we'll get here. Just side note. What does an empty life look like? That's a really good list, by the way. That's a really good list. If you're living in drunkenness and lust, if, if your desires drive everything you do, well, that's a shell of a life. That's no life at all. It's an empty life. And he says, you used to live this way among the pagans. Now you're not. So this is a group of people that have been literally transformed by Jesus. And now the Apostle Peter writes to them as they are trying to live this way of Jesus in a hostile world that is calling them to live a very different way. How in the world do you live in the midst of that? Well, that's part of what this letter is going to deal with. All right. That kind of drives us then to the what. The, the, what is the purpose of the letter? Well, we've been alluding to it, but let's just make it clear. This is what one scholar says right here. He says, the purpose of the letter, Peter encourages his readers to endure suffering and persecution by giving themselves entirely to God. They are spiritual exiles awaiting their heavenly inheritance. And this is a really big theme in the letter. And we see it right out the gate in verse 1. He says, he calls them exiles. They, 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 are not, they are not home yet. Another way to translate in some translations, when Peter uses the word exile in verse 1, they also, it also can be translated pilgrim. Or a pilgrim on the way. You are not home yet. Now I'm sure these Christians had homes. Like literally, they went to somewhere they lived all the time. They probably grew up and they had ancestors that grew up in the very town they lived. And yet, because they are, they are following the way of Jesus, they are exiles in this world. This world is not their home. Peter, at Paul, you remember, says it this way, you are citizens of heaven. This is the kind of thing Peter's drawing on. And so this is very important, and he, he's going to pull on this theme multiple times. Let's just look at verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17. Look at how he says it here. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in relevant fear. You ever thought about yourself as a foreigner? Now, maybe you do as a Christian in our current world, but you are a foreigner no matter what your nationality is, if you are a Christian, in the end, this is not your final home. It's very important in this letter. Take a look at another one, chapter 2, verse 11. Peter writes this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners 
and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And then we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll acknowledge, I think at this point we've got to acknowledge that if you're living as a foreigner in a place that isn't your home and you're trying to live a different way, there will be suffering. And the call that Peter's going to make to them over and over is as exiles, as people who are not home yet, who are living against the grain in your current culture, you are going to have to follow the way of Jesus and His way is the way of suffering. He suffered, you are called to suffer. You don't get a pass here. You can't live a different way than the rest of culture and think that you just get a free ride out of this. Here's what he says. Just, just want to see how he frames it. He, he frames it with a sunset. Okay. Okay. Uh, for those listening, the screen went blank. It went to a sunset. Okay, we're back. First uh, Peter 2, last part of verse 20 and then 21. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Now we really, that, that's like a favorite verse for most Christians, to follow in the steps of Christ. The context of the, the command to follow in the steps of Christ is in the context of suffering. As Christ suffered, you be ready to suffer. Do not compromise. You stand your ground. You do it with gentleness, but you do it boldly. And you suffer with Him. Alright. And so that brings us, after all of this, it brings us then to the question, like, when did he write it then? When did he write it? Now, to help us here, I want to put up a, a timeline. Uh, let's put up a timeline here. So, 